0: Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source for news, interviews and comment on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by TCT Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and today I'm bringing you the latest episode of our Executive Interview Series. This time we're joined by James DeMoof, the CEO of Surar Technologies, a Wilmington, Massachusetts based company aiming to deliver metal additive manufacturing at scale. As DeMoof explains in this episode, Searaw Technologies was founded in response to a challenge he came across at the National Ignition Facility at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, while working with a machine designed for fusion development test experiments. Needing to be creative with geometries and having access to a material that couldn't be welded, James and his colleagues turned to 3D printing. And when they couldn't feasibly utilise off-the-shelf 3D printing technologies that exist today, area printed technology was developed and is now being commercialised. Throughout the episode, we discussed the capabilities of that technology, the Sura business model, and the industry Sura expects to impact. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head on over to tstmagazine.com, where you can subscribe to the print edition of TST Magazine and our weekly additive insight newsletter for free. James, welcome to the Additive Insight podcast uh we spoke maybe about six months ago now so beginning of the year how how's things How's 2022 been treating you and the uh Surah team
1: awesome well hey great to be here thanks for having me sam uh you know 2022 is definitely better than 2021 in a lot of ways um yeah. let's not talk about 2020 um <laughs> but you know i think uh for one uh you know we I think as we all know, the hiring market's been crazy um for the last year plus. And you know, this last quarter, we've finally been able to hit our hiring targets. So it's uh it's been good to, you know, be able to to get to where we need to be and get the people in place to to you know, ramp with us, right? So when you're a small company, increasing your growth rate can be challenging. And obviously adding new people to the workforce, you know, you gotta do all that in the right way to also maintain culture and maintain, you know, the the whole ecosystem that you built uh, for the company. So, you know, we've got a fantastic team working on not just the technology, but the people side on the culture and making sure that, you know, at the end of the day, it's the people that make it happen, right? The tech is just a vehicle to get you there. Um, so. Um, you know, it's it's been good. And we've made a ton of progress, um, both on product, um, as well as, you know, bringing the team to bear. Um, you know, of course, we've been faced by, you know, some of the issues that everyone else sees these days in supply chain. Um, I think you got to quote that one of our a key component was going to be like 60 weeks delayed and that kind of just makes your eyes pop out and then you have to scramble move heaven and earth to make that not be the case which we did of course but you know it's still there's those you know heart pounding moments when you're like oh gosh now what do we do um and it's it's simple stuff right i mean this is like electrical switch gear for a building right i mean but it's it all adds up right so um you know the supply chain i think impacts everyone and uh it turns out that's also a focus for what we're doing and the problems we're trying to solve so
0: Mm -hmm. That's cool. I'm sure we'll, we'll come on to that a little bit later, but when we, when we spoke at the the beginning of the year, um, one of the things you, you suggested was that a company should know what it wants to be when it grows up. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell us what you want Sarah, to be as it becomes a more mature business?
1: Yeah. You know, as we, as we grow up, right, we're, we're looking at you know, we, you know, we think about it from both the tech technology point of view and from the business model point of view. So, we're looking to sell parts to customers, right? And and so, how does that, you know, as we progress through our various different generations of machines in our roadmap, how does that inform what our business model should be, right? And so, for us, the you know, as we scale our machines and we've got this fantastic scaling knob which is our you know we, we build our own lasers which are the core and backbone to our system we also build our own optical patterning devices which essentially unlocks scalability allows us to use the, that potential of the lasers um, you know when we scale we get bigger and when you get bigger and you're selling parts uh, it, it's a great thing because you can lower the cost of parts our printed good costs can just plummet and that means we can really start breaking into conventional manufacturing markets that have been, you know, just completely unthinkably out of reach for additive. And and how do you bring that into the fold? Uh you know, getting part costs to, you know, 50, 25, maybe even $10 a kilo at some day, right? That's where we're talking about just massive disruption in the manufacturing market and that's really what enables you to make impacts on, you know, broader things that we care about like, you know, clean energy, like supply chain, right? Um, Manufacturing uh, as a whole globally accounts for, you know, about a fifth of carbon emissions, right? So, you know, additive is a green process. Every additive company could say, oh, we're gonna make some impact, but unless you can scale, you can't really make a a meaningful impact. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we see that we're one of the few, if the only uh, additive company that can map out, how do you scale to mass production levels? to actually make that impact so when we want to what do we want to be when we grow up we want to change the world of manufacturing we want to electrify it we want to democratize it and we want to you know make park production costs uh, so low that you know essentially it's it makes iterating and development and hardware as easy as it is in software today if you can do that you're going to see an explosion of applications and new things that come online that we just can't even dream about right now um, and that's what's going to be exciting.
0: Okay, so that's that's where you're going. Where did, Tell us where you, you came from. What's the kind of the backstory to, to the company?
1: Yeah, so we were originally, uh, this technology was originally developed to solve a problem in energy. Um, we were working on the National Ignition Facility at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory uh, to essentially take a an r d machine that fires once a day to do fusion development research, uh, test experiments. To have it fire, you know, 15 times a second in a power plant, and we needed to be creative on either materials or geometry um, to make that happen. To essentially build the structures that were needed. And then we got a mandate saying you can't be creative on materials, so you have to you have to play within certain bounds there. So we ended up being creative, needed to be creative on the geometry. And um, we found a, a solution that would work for us. Um, it was a special metal alloy that, you know, couldn't be welded, but it could be 3D printed and still maintain all of its properties. And it just was only going to take, you know, a couple hundred years for 3D printing to, to make one of those machines. Um, so... That was a problem and essentially this technology was developed to solve that problem how do you get to high volume high throughput um, manufacturing cost wasn't initially um, a main issue but you know i think it's it's important for everyone in every business so uh, but how do you how do you do that at scale how do you really scale up additive to be
0: mass production tell me about the technology then area printing i, I believe it's called so how does that technology work, and and what do you see as the kind of big challenges um, it addresses in terms of current additive manufacturing technology that we see today, as well as um, some of the kind of challenges that traditional, conventional manufacturing technologies also face?
1: Yeah, so we you can kind of think of us as like a next step um, evolution, or you know, growth from what we typically think of as powder bed fusion. Specifically laser powder bed fusion, but we don't scan a laser spot around. Um, we do what looks more like, you know, we 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 pulse, have a pulsed laser, and it's one pulse per shot per area. And so we look at an area, we stare at it, and we expose it for a certain amount of time. It's not long, you know, it's in the milliseconds uh timeframe in total. Um, we're about 40 hertz print rate right now. Um, but it's a that staring, essentially, we're we're doing millions of pixels in parallel as opposed to doing one pixel at a time, uh, as you could think of it with your scan a laser spot around. And, and this allows us a lot of flexibility in terms of architecture and how we can scale and grow. Um, if we want to add more, you know, print faster, we crank up the power and we expand our area, increasing our resolution. In the process, um, because we build our own patterning devices, so implement a higher resolution device, crank up the power, bigger area, higher resolution um, within that area, and then you can have essentially you've increased your productivity and you've not given up resolution and quality. Which in today's world, if you want to go faster and you just scale up a laser, you end up having to defocus your spot size, otherwise you drill because you're you know all that power in a very small spot, right? Laser cutting is an industry for a reason, right? So. That's a problem. Scaling up, you know, defocusing your beam. Scaling up in today's technology means you lose resolution, and so yeah, you can go faster, but now your high-resolution, beautiful, you know, good as printed part now become needs, you know, post processing. It needs machining. It needs additional work to be done to it, which increases costs. It increases processing time, um, and decreases the number of applications it's suitable for. So we have scalability in there um and that's that's a big part of it but there's also the material quality part um today you know i think we, we well understand in powder bed that if you change your laser parameters you can affect you know, for a given material, you can, you know, print different features, you can embed different stresses, you can have, uh, you know, different material properties, whether it's grain structure, uh, grain orientation, crystal structure, surface finish, you know, you can change your laser parameters to make that happen. The problem is, is when you do that, you slow down. And that means you're really paying a premium for that ability. And what we're bringing to bear, you know, when we print, we print essentially this larger, you know, it's not, as big as I'm holding my hands for, but it's, you know, it's about a postage stamp on a side um, 40 times a second. Every pixel within that postage stamp is individually modulatable in terms of intensity and intensity over the exposure. So you can imagine that, you know, one might have a be hot up front and then it cool down. The other one might, you know, be low up front and heat up. And, you know, you can have whatever you want on a per pixel basis. And this means you have a fundamental level of control that is unprecedented and you can do it all without slowing down. Which is also unprecedented um and so you know today we've been able to use this to demonstrate complete elimination of spatter and ejecta right there are no fireworks in our process there happens to be what looks like a brief flame um we're continuing to dial in those parameters to demonstrate that we can print parts with zero degree overhangs to print parts that have you know zero residual stress or have residual stress where you want it when you want it so you know, this is going to take obviously a lot of tuning. There's going to be a lot of software algorithms that go around this. Um, and that's going to be, you know, sort of a basis for how you apply this to parts on a larger scale, but you know, here's the mechanism for how you do it. And it's kind of like, here's the tool. Now you just got to tune it. Um, so daunting, there's a lot of knobs to tune, but we actually have the knobs. Um, so just to give you a perspective, that's sort yeah. of what we think about.
0: Okay. So the, the, the pixel control you were talking about there, um, it sounds interesting when you're explaining it. What does that mean in terms of the output of the machine? What are the benefits further along the workflow in terms of the application that comes out the other end?
1: So the, you know, let's just, just peel the onion. So easy ones, right? Elimination of spatter. Then you got, you know, which means, you know, spatter, right, is... Partially agglomerated powder particles that fly off and land in areas of virgin powder and then they don't print the same so it's you know your it's a defect generator that you've eliminated so we've gotten rid of that um the next step here is being able to reduce supports and you can do that in a number of ways one is you know i can print a zero degree overhang over an x length of span without any supports well that means less materials need to be printed that means my process can speed up um and that's that's a big deal right so uh less waste As well as, uh, you know, higher processing times, Um, then you get into quality aspects which says, Okay, I'm going to have this, you know, this part of the part be processed differently, you know, maybe the edge is processed differently from the middle maybe that increases your hardness, maybe that, you know, embeds residual stress in that, because that part, when it's in use is going to flex like this, you know, it's going to open up, maybe it's like an L bracket, and you want to embed compressive stress in the middle there. Well, now it's got a, you know, higher strength where you need it specifically. Um, And so there's, there's different aspects on how you can tune that to give you material properties that are part dependent for how that part should work in application space. Um, So that's, you know, kind of the, the gambit of kind of what, what we talk about. So uh reduce support structure, reduce defects, reduce waste. Um, if you don't have any spatter, you don't have any waste, um, and you know, improve material quality such that it means or exceeds the needs of the customer, right? I mean, the goal is to delight the customer at the end of the day. So, mm-hmm. how do we do that? How do we delight the customer with better performance and better properties and so forth?
0: Okay, I imagine one of the ways that you can delight a customer is by giving them a load of materials to work with. So what materials are you able to process today with your technology? And what are the materials that you're looking at further down the track in the future to enable for users of your technology?
1: Yeah. So initially we've made the decision to keep it as simple as possible and first qualify, you know, conventional materials that are, are well known today and well qualified, right? That, you know, people have have experience working with um, we see that because we've got all this flexibility and tunability in the in the system well we can move to materials that are commonly considered to be you know unweldable or unprocessable materials um, for the additive process right this is like every standard aluminum alloy um pretty much you know three thousand seven thousand six thousand series aluminum you've got a number of Inconel alloys that commonly have stress cracking, that potentially can be alleviated by changing your cooling rates. Um, so, you know, and then I think you got more exotic alloys. You know, every customer um, previously, before additive, um, had their favorite alloy suite, right, the to do what they need to do. And many of them spent a significant time and effort dialing that in. And then additive comes along and says, "Now nah, we're just going to use these ones." Um, and you know, tuning additive to a material can be painful. And so you see. All these material companies springing up that then tune the material to the additive process, which, while well, I think that's beneficial, <clears throat> and I think you know at the end of the day, tuning both the process and the material are going to get you like you know net even better effects. But you should have a process that's tunable so you can print that material. Um, so our goal is to print any meltable material uh, with our process, whether it's metal, plastic, glass, ceramic, you name it. If it can melt. We should be able to process it. So okay. that's that's our, you know, where we want to be when we grow up. We want to be able to print anything that can melt. Okay. Um, so that's, uh, you know, right now we've got, we're, we've qualified Stain 316 stainless steel. We're in the process and very close to qualifying Incan L718. Um, next in the roadmap is likely going to be Incan L625, um, a tool steel like the M300, um, and then moving on to, you know, your standard aluminum AL10S IMG. Um, Ti64 um, and so forth. but we are customer driven it's our customers that we're working with that are saying you know we want to make these parts in these materials and so we go and qualify those materials for those customers um, and then we qualify the parts and then we ramp them to production.
0: In the conversation we had earlier this year, um, you were telling me that the markets you were looking to serve at least initially were more consumer electronics and, and automotive than say aerospace and medical. Mm-hmm. Um, And you mentioned that um, those first two industries have been underserved by additive in the past. Mm -hmm. So how does your technology address the challenges that have existed for AM in those markets? And what do you perceive as the early opportunities in those industries?
1: You know, for for both of them, it's, you know, there's there's different needs for both, right? So on the consumer electronics, there's less mechanical strength needs, um, right? It's more cosmetic. uh, Mm -hmm. And so, You know, you got to be able to print parts that that look good and you got to be able to do it very cost effectively. And so, you know, I think we're, we're, we have a process that's very tunable and we're in the process of dialing in to exactly meet the cosmetic finish requirements. And then it's, how do you do that at the right cost points? And we can lay out a roadmap for them that says, yeah, you want to, you want to get down to these lower cost points. This is how we get there. And it's a journey, but you know, let's, let's go down that path because I think we all want to end up in that place. Um, and we're the only ones who can who can make that happen and tell a credible story for how you actually, from a technology point of view and a you know actual you know operating and execution point of view, make it to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, that same cost story also applies to automotive, although automotive has more requirements on the metallurgical side for what they actually need to be in in the guts of the metal. Um, and so that can be that can be a little bit longer of a qualification process. Um, both of them are very high volume, which means you go through qualification, you know, pretty extensive qualification because you know if something's wrong and you repeat the same error again millions of times, that's bad, right? So you want to make sure you're doing it right. So qualification and rigor is important. It's good and it's necessary um, when you get to those larger volumes of production. So we're not talking about, you know, onesies, twosies and prototypes, right? We're talking like literally millions of parts per year um, of that one part.
0: Where are we up to in terms of working with some of these guys in these industries today are, are applications in development are they already out in the real world and, and what you you know the, the talk there is millions of parts per year how realistic is that today and, and you know where are we up to in terms of volumes
1: yeah so i mean right now we are in the process of qualifying parts for our customers so when we engage we engage as a sort of a two-step program. First is what we call our app program or area printing production program, but really it's you qualify the customer's material, you qualify their part, you ramp to production. That program takes time, right? It does not, it's not just a snap of your finger, right? I mean, especially when you talk larger volumes, that third phase of ramp to production, you wanna have really good rigor to make sure that you've got quality going on there. So mm-hmm. we're, Right now, we're in the initial phases of qualify the material, qualify the part, and we're doing that with. Um, you know, we've got one one customer in automotive turbochargers formerly in the program, and we're in various stages um, with a number of others, um, both in automotive and consumer electronics. Actually, uh, you know, some in aerospace as well. Um, to to get them, you know, into and through various other stages of that program, so it's, you know, we're looking for first production parts, uh, likely going to be in 2023 um, for some of our quickest movers. Um, some, depending on their qualification timeline, it might be 24, 25 before we see first parts from them going into production. Um, depending on who it is right everyone's got different applications um so we want to start with parts that you know are going to be wins we don't want these just to be you know paper study and that's it that's that's not useful for anyone so you know the volumes can vary from you know uh, thousands of parts per year to millions it just depends on the customer depends on the application Um, right now we've we've got a pretty diverse customer set because they all have different benefits for us as business And so we've got a diverse set of you know of players in the field um, on all accounts.
0: The I know the answer to this next question is also going to probably start with depends on the customer, depends on the application. (laughs) But you mentioned there that you know as part of the the kind of the process of of working with these customers, you qualify the material and you qualify the part. How likely is it that there are changes to the design to their part? So is it a case of You guys are taking hold of the kind of design for additive manufacturing principles, or is the aim really that they don't need to do too much to their designs and you can tackle the conventional designs?
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely the latter. Um, We actually see for Gen 1 machine an incredible ability to take parts that were previously machined, big, bulky, parts you would never think of for additive and we can print them more cost effectively than they can machine them today. Um that's further exacerbated by the, you know, lack of machinists globally. Um and so, you know, if they want to increase capacity, you know, they can either choose between, you know, onboarding, you know, hundreds or thousands of machinists or <laughs> finding alternative options for it, right? So, um we've got a process that is somewhat, you know, we don't, you know, Laser Powder Red Fusion really cares about minimizing weight at almost all costs because it's it's the number one driver, right? You're If you're printing one pixel at a time, um, the less number of pixels you have to print, the better. Um, we essentially want to minimize the number of areas we print at a time. I don't care what's inside the area. You can have high resolution, you can have low resolution. I don't care. It just we want to minimize, you know, instead of minimizing the number of pixels, we minimize the number of areas. Um, so it's a little bit of a different way of thinking about things, which means we can actually print a lot of material really fast and do it at high resolution at the same time. And so that's something that uh, laser powder bed um, or powder bed in general has really hard time with doing. And so I think which takes machining sort of out of the the running for for typical powder bed fusion. Um, So that's, you know, I think part of the goal is make it easy for the customer. If you don't have to learn how to design for additive, it's a huge barrier. Get that out of the way. Um, But it is an additive process. So if you want to enhance the performance of your device, go for it. But we can get in the door and get that first step without having to make any changes to the part. And then later, you know, have that be a follow-on activity. Or do it right away. But it's the customer's choice on, on that.
0: I guess now would be a good time to discuss the company's business model because, as I understand it, the offering of area printing technologies via more of a contract manufacturing service as opposed to you guys manufacturing and, and selling machines. Um, and as per our chat earlier this year, I think you were saying that that's because as you know, machines get bigger, they get more expensive, machines sales can delay getting customers to the, you know, the kind of series production volumes that Mm -hmm. you guys are targeting. Um, But to achieve that, you know, to achieve what you guys want to achieve, what's the infrastructure you need within your facilities, what are the core competencies you need, and what kinds of standards and certifications do you guys need to meet?
1: So let's kind of answer that in reverse order right I mean the standards and certifications are completely dependent upon the industries that we're working with and and who we're um, doing business with so that's that's really customized per customer per industry basis. Um, You know there's obviously going to need to be that rigor there um, to validate that for those applications right it's a requirement for getting that application to market you got to do it. we're gonna be seeing, you know, when we ramp up facilities, we're gonna be looking, you know, for our gen one around, let's say 30 machines per facility, but it might be as low as 10, might be as high as 60, who knows? Uh really just depends. We got some one customer where their, you know, one part would be 175 machines. Um, do we put that in one facility? Do we distribute it? Um, you know, we'll have to you know do the bigger evaluation on that because you do get great economies of scale with infrastructure equipment. And so that's another thing needs to be deployed with the machines is you know that they take power right so that means that power that electrical power needs to be brought in um, and that's why we're you know looking to really make a statement saying we're going to do co deployments um, with power generation and specifically with green power generation and so you know with each one of our facilities we deploy we're going to be deploying and working with you know energy providers to deploy the, the energy source to to match it. Um, you know, and our plants are going to start, let's say for 30 machines, we're talking, you know, five megawatts, so we're not big. This is more like, you know, a microgrid with solar, or wind, you know, other renewables in that same sense. Um, as we go larger, right, I mean, our Gen X machine in 2030 printing parts at less than $25 a kilo, it's a third of a gigawatt, right? That's a that's a big power plant, um, you know, sizable at least. And, uh, you know, I think that's that's where you start saying, okay, we we, this is big enough where we can't just, hop onto the local grid, we're making too big of an impact. You really need to logistically bring your own power in. Um, And then that, you know, because we're focusing on green power can also be distributed to others um, locally, you know, tapping into the local grid. Um, So that's the the power part of it. And you know, for all the power that's made at the end of the day, what does it turn into? Right. It, you know, it's turning into laser light, it's turning into waste heat. And so that needs to go somewhere, and so we need chillers and you know that sort of infrastructure to to remove it from our systems um, and remove from the building and so forth. And you know, just balance a plant. Everything everyone goes through, but it's uh, you know those things get good economies of scale as you go larger. So that might incentivize having you know bigger deployments of machines per facility will get you better economies of scale by doing that versus you know onesies twosies. And I wanted to ask you about
0: the demand for your technology, which is something I think we discussed earlier in the year. So what how how are you finding the kind of onboarding process of customers, what how many customers are you working with at the moment? And what's the, I guess, the the backlog of demand? Cause I think when we, we spoke, you said there's customers you're working with and there's customers you're waiting in the that are waiting in the wing. So where are we up to with that?
1: Yeah. So unfortunately we are bandwidth limited. And that's largely because we have one machine on the floor today. We are scrambling to get the next machine deployed as fast as possible. It's going to be here at the end of the end of the year. Uh, by the way, if you're in the area, ever would love to have you by to come take a uh, visit. Um, but we'll be, you know, we're deploying that machine at the end of the year. Um, the machine after that deploys, you know, about June timeframe, and then we're looking to ramp up to one a quarter, and then one a month, and then. Greatly increasing um, our deployment rate from there. Um, But that's, you know, our our limitation right now is bandwidth. So we've got more customers in our funnel than than we can handle. We've got, um, you know, eight letters of intent for joining our program. We've got customers that are already in our program. We've got um, over, you know, 100 customers total in our funnel. And we get about almost, well, we were getting about 12 a quarter. Now it's up to like 20 a quarter of new leads. That are or just organically generated inbound that turn into customers um that have viable parts viable applications and you know applications to our general One machine um so it's it's a it's exciting um we've got we've got to get more bandwidth on the floor to, to handle it so i think our, our number one constraint right now is just machine time um getting more machines online these are are you know especially for these early generation ones they're, you know, they take time to implement. And we're in the process of setting up all that supply chain infrastructure to, to make sure that these can be smoothly produced. Um, but you know, they're they're big machines. There's a lot going on. Um, I'd say pretty much more so than any other added machine ever in existence. So it's uh you know, it's a it's a it's a good challenge. Um, but you know, there'll be good rewards at the other, at the end of the tunnel. Mm. So
0: yeah, definitely. Um where, where are you guys based, by the way? I might take you up on the offer to, to come out and see you
1: absolutely yeah we're in wilmington massachusetts about 15 uh miles north of boston um so pop over okay. to boston and uh yeah just take it over up that sounds good to me. <laughs> um so to
0: finish off today james um you recently shared a blog on your social media um which was entitled why Re- reshoring is the next revolution in green manufacturing and in that article you were suggesting as many of us have over the last few years that AM can have a role in easing inefficiencies in manufacturing supply chains, how localizing production can positively affect the environment. What do you think needs to happen for the utilization of additive in that way to to become a reality? Uh,
1: Scale. (laughs) (laughs) At the end of the day, it's all about scale, right? If you can't do meaningful amounts of parts for a meaningful number of customers um, and have a a price point that is, you know, and and mainly it's driven by the price point and production rates um, that you can achieve, but unless you're at scale, you can't make a big enough impact to really, you know, change the status quo. So, uh, it's all about scale. It's it's how do you how do you get there both from a cost point and a production point and do it at the quality standards that are required by the industries you're serving. And so today we've had additives that's got you know great quality but it's super slow and super expensive. LPBF is an example. And then you got other applications that are you know good price, high production rates, but eh, quality isn't quite there, like binder jetting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need kind of the melding of that and. And this is what we see we we can bring to bear um, at Syrah is having high quality, high throughput and price points that meet the needs for the customers. And so, you know, when we're reshoring, right, it's not just a U.S. thing either. It's a global thing. Um, make parts where they're needed, when they're needed. And, you know, this avoids having your supply chains, um, you know, crisscrossing around the globe, you know, being you know impacted by any and every crisis that might affect them. Um, and whether it's, know truck drivers on strike or you know uh some you know a war that's going on as an example right it's let's how can we give part manufacturers control over their futures over their you know their production um and it's by making those parts you know at their sites or near their sites um, in a globally distributed manner